In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. (coughs) When I was young, um, my family would spend time at my grandpa and grandma Unger's farmhouse for holidays sometimes in Coaldale, Alberta. Now, you probably haven't heard of Coaldale, but that's fine. It's only because it's a small farming community outside the big city of Lethbridge, Alberta, which you also haven't heard of. Needless to say, there weren't a lot of attractions for us to go to while we were in Coaldale. So a lot of our time with that was either spent exploring the no longer in use farm equipment or sitting inside and reading or poking through grandpa and grandma's stuff. So one time during a visit, my dad asked me if he could teach me a card game. I was excited to have something to do, so I agreed. The game, he told me, was called Teg War. I'd never heard of it, but I was eager to play. He suggested that I would learn sort of as we go. It's easier to explain it that way. But as we played, he kept correcting me. So, oh, if you play a spade, I get to pick up three more cards. Or, since I played a two after this four and it's a diamond, you have to discard some cards. It was very confusing and I was constantly lost. And I don't remember if I gave up in frustration or whether the game actually had some sort of ending. But as I got up to leave the living room, this enormous, goofy smile appeared on my dad's face. And he asked me, Andrew, do you know what Teg War stands for? He could hardly contain his glee as he responded, the exciting game without any rules. It was a peak dad joke. He had an entire fake card game made up for one single punchline, a dad joke whose greatness I hope to one day emulate in my own life. It's something to aspire to. It's a legacy. And it's that smile right before the punchline that I want to try and focus on. I'm sure you can think of it. There's this smile that comes right before either a small child or a dad tells a joke that anticipates it. Like the person telling you the joke can't help but reveal how delighted they are about the play on words they're about to give. They are so excited that they sort of tip their hand just a little bit right before telling the punchline. That's what we experience this week of the liturgical year, the fourth week of Advent. In Mary's Magnificat, In the interaction between she and Elizabeth, we're experiencing a moment that's sort of like the top of a roller coaster. That moment when the ascent is over and you just turn the corner of the hill. Or it's it's like the leading tone right before a chord change, when you can feel that new key in your gut, but it just hasn't arrived yet. It's the smile right before the dad joke. And I actually want to take a moment to talk about comedy here. Stand-up comedy seems to have this technical structure to it. If you watch a lot of stand-up comedians, you can kind of notice patterns where you can kind of feel the jokes happening even without thinking about the specific content. You don't even need to know the words they're saying because there's sort of just an an ebb and flow to it. Uh, The stand-up comedian Hannah Gadsby summarizes comedy simply as tension and release. Jokes have a setup that creates tension, brings you to a point of expectation, and then there's a punchline that releases you from it. She speaks, though, about the dishonesty of stand-up comedy. In her own experience, narrative having a beginning, middle, and end requires her to tell her stories in a truncated sense. To tell her stories in a way that was funny, she'd have to cut the ending off because her stories were sad and tragic, and they wouldn't have delivered the laughs that she was looking for. So she sort of imagines there's narrative, there's her own life experiences, and then there's comedy. And for comedy, she has to be dishonest, leave out the sad endings. But in that sense, stand-up comedy is only dishonest if the stories you tell are narrative tragedies and not narrative comedies. 
The difference between narrative comedies and tragedies are, if I understand correctly, and forgive me any English teachers in here, they're largely about how they end. Comedies tend to have everything looking at their worst just before everything turns out all right. Tragedies have the opposite. I'm by no means well-versed in Shakespeare, but two of his plays that I do know sort of illustrate this point. In The Merchant of Venice, our hero Antonio is just about to lose his pound of flesh for not paying his debt to a loan shark, which, as I had to have explained to me in the ninth grade, would kill you, when out of nowhere, a legal technicality saves his life, that the lender was entitled to a pound of flesh, but not a drop of blood, a comedy. I'm sorry for spoiling The Merchant of Venice for you. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Romeo and Juliet, spoilers coming for this too, in order for our star-crossed lovers not to end up living happily ever after, every last thing that could go wrong would need to. And alas, every last thing that could go wrong does, and they both die a tragedy. Notice, it, everything should go right and it doesn't is a tragedy. Everything should go wrong, but it doesn't is a comedy. Comedies go down then up, tragedies go up then down. Now good comedies feel internally consistent, that the thing that saves the day was visible all along. And almost like a whodunit mystery novel, you might have been able to figure it out ahead of time. Maybe it's the character you met briefly in the first act whom our protagonist was kind to. Antonio's legal loophole is an example. Um, eagles in Lord of the Rings showing up out of the blue, maybe not so much, but we'll give Tolkien a pass. It's my dad telling me that the card game was called Teg War, a title that makes no sense until later it's revealed to be an acrostic. Jokes are the same way. You don't give a setup and then say something unrelated and ridiculous afterwards. Some of my favorite stand-up routines, even some of my favorite comedy shows, include a sort of layering of jokes where things said early on come back again and again in new ways. Thematically, it sort of rhymes as it goes. Now, at this point, you may be wondering why I'm talking so much about humor, so let me try to make my way back to Advent. See, in Advent, we do this strange temporal walk with those who waited for Jesus' first coming, hearing their events sort of in time, but we simultaneously reflect and compare it to our own experience as we wait for his second coming. And after three weeks of apocalypse and calls to repentance and calling awake those who were asleep, think about the kind of harshness of tone we heard in the gospel readings for three weeks who would have expected that this is where it all pointed to? Especially last week. Last week we heard John the Baptist saying to the crowds, Who told you to flee the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Advents 1 through 3 show us that God is coming. God is going to come to bring judgment upon his people and for his people. The day of the Lord is upon us. And then here in this last week, we get a little tip of the hand. And it's a woman pregnant too late in her life a woman pregnant too early. An unwed mother and a barren woman meet together and come in joy as their children, whose journeys have already started, react to one another. This is the next part of that story. We often think about Mary in terms of her yes, her be it unto me as you have said. And maybe another year we can reflect on her obedience and her willingness to be faithful, maybe even her meekness. But this year we get the Magnificat. The mighty will be made low, the rich made poor, God's taken his lowly servant and made her something more than she could have ever imagined. We read from Micah, this tribe that had no business being anything, it didn't even get counted as a tribe, that's where the Messiah is going to come from. In Hebrews we hear there was this whole sacrificial system, but it's actually not exactly what you wanted. God was showing up to bring justice to and for his people, but he was going to begin not in strength, but in weakness. Who would have thought? 
We get Mary and Elizabeth both sort of asking, why me? Not out of dread, but out of joy. I don't hear Mary's song, the Magnificat, as this stoic declaration of a prophet, simply blankly telling you facts, but as a response of a heart that is overflowing with delight and surprise. It's a joke. Not a joke in the sense that it isn't real, that is this a joke, but something that is truly real, perhaps even more real, that has tapped into something that is the most real. Who would have thought? Mary is smiling just before the punchline. Or rather, she's seeing God about to tell the joke, and she can see his smile, and she is feeling her own delight in anticipation. David Taylor, a professor at Regent College, in a blog post entitled Pursuing a Playful Liturgy, said this, The world that God has made is marked by hyperabundance. There is more in creation than human beings need or could ever make good use of in multiple lifetimes. Birdsong, tuneful to the human ear, exceeds our needs for oral pleasure. The flavor in our foods, from chicken korma to Krispy Kreme donuts, goes beyond what any individual deserves. In creation, there is wonderful excess of light and texture, of goodness and beauty, and it is all a grace. If a fundamental purpose of corporate worship is to proclaim and enact the gospel, then surely I would like to believe our practices of proclamation and enactment, enactment excuse me, would somehow point to the astonishing, gratuitous, even hilarious nature of the good news. To draw attention to the humorous nature of the gospel in our liturgical gatherings becomes a way to bind us more deeply to Jesus and to humble us more thoroughly because we too have found that grace, not sin, has the last word in our life, preposterously so. I like that ending, preposterously so. Advent is a comedy. We look at God coming near and we examine ourselves and live in the tension that things in darkness are going to be revealed until this last moment when God shows up in the manner in which we least expect it. The God who is coming to reveal the things now hidden in darkness chooses to arrive via an unwed mother to have his way announced by a man born to a woman too old to bear children. Who would have thought? Pre-Christmas commercialism, on the other hand, is a narrative tragedy. Weeks or months of quote-unquote Christmas spirit, marked by putting our hope in a feeling, sentimentality, nostalgia, and luxury cars with giant bows. Spouses apparently making enormous financial decisions without consulting one another. <laughs> that doesn't end well. It's marked by needs we don't actually have for stuff we don't actually need. And on December 26th, on Boxing Day, we'll all find that at the bottom of this seemingly bottomless well of good feelings and warm Christmas cheer, there isn't much of anything other than profit. The reason stores put out Christmas decorations in October is because we'll buy them. There's a reason Target doesn't have any displays set up for Pentecost, and it isn't because they have a theological preference for the incarnation over the gifting of the Spirit. But leaving my rant about the nonsense of a war on Christmas aside, Advent 4 is the last point at which our paths and the paths of those who anticipated Jesus' first coming are together. Today is the last moment because tomorrow we'll leave this tension of looking forward and back at once to simply celebrate history, the incarnation, the event that changed everything. Tomorrow our joint paths will split. But while their Advent happened, we will still be left waiting. But we've been brought to this moment in our waiting, the smile before the punchline. Until Jesus comes again, we live in a perpetual Advent 4, because we know the joke is coming. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, and in fact, we should prepare ourselves for it being very different than what we expect if we're going to walk alongside our friends 2,000 years ago. 
but we know that God, the master comedian, has placed hints of his joke in the lead-up. And the analogy may be a bit stretched, but Mary and Elizabeth have these two young boys living inside of them, making it impossible for them to forget what was coming. We have been given the Holy Spirit tabernacling inside of us, giving us just a taste of God's presence before he comes. We have just enough of the world that is to come that we can live in anticipation, not just in our minds, but in our souls. So what do we do in the meantime while we wait for the release of the tension? We look for the smiles. We look to the places where God has already started to tip his hand and tell the joke. The God who delights in telling that joke and his telling the perfect dad joke, as it were. Where he's already played his hand. Where the new creation has already shown up. And like all good comedies, we can sometimes see those moments in the places where things seem the darkest. God's grace is preposterous, forgiving and changing those who have no business receiving it, which is all of us, doing it in extraordinary ways through ordinary moments and ordinary people. We look for those little pinpricks of moments. Not only do we look for the smiles, but we smile ourselves. We know the joke is coming. We're far-sighted, and we can see that on the horizon, this story will not be a tragedy, but a comedy. That comedy in itself is not dishonest, but is more honest than tragedy. Somehow God will have the last laugh because he's laughing already, delighting in those moments in creation, those places and those people who are already living into the kingdom that is to come. We tell each other the stories of when God has been telling jokes already, those moments of who would have thought in our own lives. So today I pray that God may give us more and more of his preposterous grace so that we might overflow with joy and laughter as we get a glimpse at the end of the story, the day of the Lord, when all things will be made right and laughter echoes throughout the world. Amen. Amen.